Kate, do you think that whilst people are in lockdown, they'll be brave enough to do more things like home testing? I think being in lockdown is an ideal time to do more home testing because when you're in lockdown, you're kind of in limbo. You don't really have the opportunity to do very much. But actually, what you can do with home testing is find out so much about your fertility and whether you need to start making some changes to lifestyle. And that's why we're really chuffed to have Medichex sponsoring the Fertility Podcast. Because whether you're trying to get healthy before getting pregnant or investigating why you've not been getting pregnant, Pregnant. Medichex has a range of simple home blood tests developed with Kate to help you. Visit medichex.com to find out more. This series from the Fertility Podcast is talking about miscarriage. With staggering numbers of people affected daily by this, there's still a silence around it, feelings of shame. Along with the grief, there is the physical impact of loss, and we wanted to explore this further over the coming weeks with a number of conversations from experts as well as people who have been through it. Unfortunately, there are so many reasons why miscarriage happens, whether it be genetic or placenta problems, infection or long-term health conditions you may suffer from, or sometimes we just don't know. We hope that by talking about it in this way, you will know that there is support and guidance available for you from groups, experts and organisations. To find out more about the support available, visit thefertilitypodcast.com forward slash miscarriage, where there will be listings to the range of organisations available, as well as all of these episodes. Well, this is nice. We're sat in a kitchen for the first time doing a podcast. Have we done a podcast chat in someone's kitchen before? My kitchen? With a guest. Oh, no, not with a guest. Oh, no. Well, your lounge. Oh, yes, we did. I should say my kitchen is also my lounge. And most of my lounge. Lounge, kitchen, diner. <laughs> well, it's lovely to be in your kitchen. Welcome, Dr. Jessica Farron, to the podcast. And we are in Marlebone. Kate and I have met in London, and it's our second interview of the day. Mm-hmm. We were earlier in the British Library with uh, Dr. Christine Akechi. Who's a friend of yours? Yes, absolutely. What's the world? Absolutely. So we've come to Jessica's flat to talk about her involvement in a study that was published at the start of 2020. We're speaking in February 2020. And I'm not going to try and tell the title. I would like you, Jessica, to tell us a bit about the study. And we're going to talk more about the implications of it and more about miscarriage, which is what the study was about. So I am an obstetrician and gynaecologist at Imperial College Healthcare Trust. And I took some time out of my training to do some research looking at the psychological impact of early pregnancy events. So including miscarriage and ectopic pregnancy. And actually completed my PhD in that field. And as you're saying, a month ago, there was the sort of main results of the paper came out. What we'd done is we'd sent women questionnaires to fill in one month, three months, and nine months after an early pregnancy loss. So losses before 20 weeks, most of which tend to be before 12 weeks. Asking about symptoms relating to anxiety, depression, and post-traumatic stress. And we were looking at how high those levels are in women during that follow-up period. And what I thought was really interesting, well, there's lots of things that were interesting, but that say you experience something instantly it's not to say you weren't going to experience it nine months later and the difference between when it might present when you actually allow the feelings to catch up and it all hits home that's part of the thing that I think we overestimate the the longevity of the impact Mm, so the sort of scariest statistic really from the whole thing was that at nine months one in six women is still reporting significant symptoms suggestive of post-traumatic stress which if you think how common miscarriage is how profound an implication, implications post-traumatic stress has. It's a pretty scary kind of public health concern. And did you look at 
what causes the post-traumatic stress? Was it the, the grief of losing a pregnancy or was it the actual process of miscarrying and how horrifying that can be for some women. So I think it's a really good point and one of the things that's really difficult in this field is the sort of overlap between what's a normal grief reaction and what's considered essentially sort of psychological illness. There is undoubtedly some overlap. In terms of what about the process causes it, when you look at post-traumatic stress in any context, that's not part of the sort of diagnostic requirements to look at kind of what aspect. For post-traumatic stress, generally, you've kind of got two sides of things. You've got experiencing the, or two ways you can get post-traumatic stress. You've got experiencing the loss, so experiencing the death of your baby, or you've got the sort of physical trauma of what happens to you. So, for example, emergency surgery, blood loss, pain, all those sorts of things. And so, both of those elements can be considered a traumatic event to provoke PTSD. The reason I ask that is a lot of women say to me that they're terrified almost of getting pregnant again because of the process of miscarrying and how that felt physically yeah. and then the emotional impact that that had. Absolutely, and I think one of the things that we often do really badly in early pregnancy units is counselling women about either conservative or medical management of their miscarriage. And obviously people's experience varies widely, but a lot of people do find it quite distressing and are really poorly equipped to deal with that. Because one of the um, kind of conversations in light of the study being revealed was the call for immediate improvements in the care women receive following an early stage pregnancy loss. And I know from some of the conversations I've had with women that it, it, it varies so much. So how do we start to improve that? Because it there's quite a big educational piece around that, isn't there? Absolutely, and I think there's lots we can do like in society to make a difference. A lot of the support that women can gain can be, can be from society, doesn't necessarily have to be from medical professionals, but I think undoubtedly the focus of care up until now has been entirely revolved around the clinical care. So most units, nice guidance suggests that actually you can discharge people very quickly after the diagnosis of miscarriage. There's no need to follow people up after surgical management of miscarriage. In fact, even after conservative management where, where you just sort of watch and wait, the guidance would support just allowing women to do a pregnancy test by themselves at home with no further follow-up. And I think just missing that opportunity to come back when you haven't just been delivered this horrendous news and ask questions about what might have caused it um, and help to kind of assuage the potential for self-blame, which I think is one of the biggest issues with miscarriage. Did you look at how many of the women that you were studying reached out themselves to aspects of support, so like Miscarriage Association or other charities for baby loss? Not specifically, and I think that's one of the important things in the study is that we may actually be underestimating what untreated psychological illness would look like, because I think a good proportion of people who were involved in the study would have accessed formal care. The reason it's quite difficult to look at formally in a study context is because how people classify counselling is quite different and the sort of counselling that they may have received prior to pregnancy loss may sort of feed into the support that they have afterwards. So that's why kind of methodologically it didn't make much sense to incorporate it into the analysis because it's just too variable. We asked it as a qualitative free text question and lots of women had done but there wasn't a way to sort of analyse it in much more detail as to how positive an impact it had. Anecdotally, I know that lots of women have found lots of the organisations incredibly helpful and there should be more of them. And I think it's also important to say that some women that I talk to have bad counselling and I think that's even, that's even worse than nothing. Were you surprised at the number of 
women that didn't seek out help? Did that come up? Uh, well, I'm, I mean, undoubtedly, the majority of women don't seek mm. help, either because things move on very quickly to a successful pregnancy and they sort of feel that that's a sort of natural closure to what's gone on before, or because it's just something that's, you know, as we as we've talked about, kind of is brushed under the carpet by society and is not deemed to be something that you should get help for. Because we've talked about in this series as a whole, the whole 12 weeks not saying anything mm. until that point mm. and how that conversation needs to change. And I was talking with a friend just the other day who told me that she's pregnant, she's eight weeks and she had such a traumatic birth. Mm. She's actually petrified and wanted to tell people for exactly the reasons that we've talked about. She's so worried about what could happen that she's going for an elective C-section and she's almost having to now bat off people going, wow, why aren't you doing it naturally? Mm. And so she's almost having to to talk ahead and do you think that that that's helpful for women to offer the information or what's a better way to try and help us talk more freely about this it's so hard isn't it because i would love to see this sort of a whole concept of the 12 week rule be bend completely by society but one of the things that i find really difficult a kind of feminist angle from it is is about workplace equality and I think until women feel like they have a safe place in the workplace whereby their ability for promotions won't be affected by their boss's knowledge that they are trying for a family, even though it's like fairly obvious that women in their 20s and 30s will potentially be thinking of starting a family. I think until we can get to a point where that's not an issue, it's bound to be a problem coming clean about these sorts of things at work. Can we stick with the workplace a bit more? Because I'm interested in that with regards to the PTSD and the impact on work, whether that came up in the study, because we know the implications of people's work situations from infertility anyway, and then faced with miscarriage and whether there is the support and whether there's understanding and there's policies in place for time off. Was that... Does that come up in the So insulin? one of the criteria for a diagnosis of PTSD is it has to have an impact on the life. So you just sort of have to tick a box to say that it has an impact on your relationships at home, family, or your productivity and things in the workplace. And I think that's, you know, again, one of the massive issues with this is that this, this is an event that happens to women at their sort of peak of a societal contribution, be it at work or at home. So the implications of these sorts of symptoms are massive. Do you feel that we can start looking at how the diagnosis of miscarriage is managed and how that could be improved to improve better outcomes then for women going forward so that they're less likely to have post-traumatic stress disorder. I mean, I definitely think we could do a better job as to how we counsel women. So I think one of the big issues in early pregnancy units can be management of expectations. So I think a common scenario, for example, is a woman who will go either their 12-week scan, which takes place anywhere between 11 and 14 weeks by your dates, or perhaps a scan for a little bit of spotting, expecting to have good news. And then they're told, they're given this term that they've got um, what's called a pregnancy of uncertain viability, which is a pretty difficult term to interpret anyway. Mm. But basically what it means is that if those are the sorts of dates, then things are probably not quite matching up to dates, which is not a great sign it probably means that the pregnancy isn't developing at the right speed which is an indicator of miscarriage unless of course you've got any reason that your dates might be completely wrong but by and large if you've done a pregnancy test a long while before then sadly the the highest likelihood is that it is a miscarriage from our perspective the most important thing that we can do is never make a wrong diagnosis of a miscarriage and inadvertently end a very wanted pregnancy so we will always take the view that it's better 
to wait and, and see what happens. And I think sometimes the temptation in those situations, partly sometimes out of kindness, sometimes out of the sort of busyness of the clinic, sometimes because people just aren't very practised at it and sort of don't really correlate the, what the woman's told them about their dates with what they're seeing and actually kind of engage their brains and, and explain exactly what it means. But I think it's a real shame in that situation not to make a, a real effort to explain, sadly, what the scan findings mean. And I think it's important on two fronts, the first of which is is that it prepares women for the news that's likely to come one or two weeks later. But I also think it's really important because that's a very high-risk period for them going on to naturally miscarry. And if you haven't explained it properly and you just say, oh, you know, you're just a bit behind your dates, then when they bleed, which will probably be a natural miscarriage occurring, they'll often still think that there's hope for the pregnancy. They'll rush into an A&E department, spend four hours sitting on an uncomfortable chair to be examined by people without any expertise. They'll think that something can be done to change the, to change the outcome. So in all these ways, I think you have, you have a really valuable opportunity in that first scan to make a real difference to the experience that women have. Even if you know, the outcome is a horrible one, you can make a big difference to the experience that women have going forward. So it's managing those expectations. I think so. I see time and time again how badly that's done. When you're seeing people for the second scan and really it's very clear that they weren't led to expect bad news and they were therefore in a kind of very vulnerable situation physically and, and emotionally for those couple of weeks. So I guess in an ideal world, after seeing you and having you managing their expectations that then they would go on and, and see a counsellor there and then to help them through that process initially... I mean, that's yeah. an idea world. Well, it? it's interesting. Is that, I mean, what we need to get to the bottom of with this sort of next stage of research, and thankfully I have a colleague sort of taking this over as sort of the next stage is to work out who counselling should be for, what format it should take, and what sort of timing. I think probably at that stage, when, especially with uncertain diagnoses, people are probably, you know, it's probably a little bit early. I say rather than counselling, just having a very open access sort of advice line such that people, you know, when they go home and have a million questions, just have an access Well, that's when the questions come, talk. when they get home, isn't it? Exactly. And often I think women just want to close themselves away and yeah. not necessarily have, you know, maybe been in a little bubble for a while with their partner and, and yeah. let the world carry on outside and then reach out for help a bit later down the road. And, it's, and, you know, there are all sorts of questions that women want to ask that in that moment either don't occur to them or they somehow feel a inappropriate to ask no question is inappropriate to ask but you know they don't want to talk about they feel like they can't talk about subsequent pregnancies or what it means for the future at that moment and so definitely having an opportunity to do that once sort of does to settle a little bit it's much better so how often is it an inconclusive scan that it could then pan out to be a positive pregnancy a lot of it depends on your dates and how sure you are on your date about your dates so if you're being scanned at five to six weeks, it's incredibly common to have an inconclusive scan and it doesn't necessarily mean anything bad. If you know that you're sort of more than eight, nine weeks, then the picture is very different because you really should be seeing evidence of a healthy pregnancy at that stage. And some of it will also depend on, on the severity of your symptoms, like how heavy your bleeding's been. That feeds into things as well. And if you're talking to a woman who has experienced miscarriage already or has has come at the point of having fertility treatment so it's even you know this is even more difficult if the the news isn't good and they're even more nervous about it 
What's the kind of conversation there in terms of managing expectation? Because I assume even more care needs to be placed. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things I'd say that we haven't yet done is come up with diagnostic criteria for miscarriage in the context of fertility treatment. Because obviously with fertility treatment, what's unique in that situation is that you do absolutely know the dates. So whereas with women with natural conceptions, you have to assume that the dates are wrong. There's an argument for saying that we could be much more conclusive on earlier scans with women with fertility treatment. But because we don't have that evidence base yet, the safer thing to do is to err on the side of caution and treat fertility patients in the same way as we do, with the same criteria for diagnosis as we do all women. But I think there's a definite case for trying to get that data so that especially with these patients who are a degree are especially vulnerable, that we have an opportunity to potentially sort of to, to make the diagnosis earlier and not leave them in that stage of uncertainty for longer. Especially, I was going to say, I mean, I see on the online communities when people have talked about the stages of the treatment and then they've talked about the reg transfer and then they've talked about the two-week wait and then they've talked about the positive pregnancy and then, you, you know, you're watching and then there might be the news that they've miscarried and it's just, they're, they're obviously, yeah. there's, there's a lot more available now in terms of support from these online communities, but there's a lot of patient-doctor conversations that... I watch and you know we discuss and it's almost scary some of the conversations that you see and you just wish that that person would have access to somebody and I think that transition I don't know what your guys experience maybe the setup is different where you are but I think often that transition between the fertility units and the early pregnancy units is quite badly managed we even have it so that we have a different scan system so so we don't we don't have access to the scan images and so you're sort of unnecessarily repeating scans and or repeating conversations. And not, not so much communication between the two, either. Yeah, and just very found. different with people of a very kind of siloed in their way of thinking. 100%. Um, which is a shame for the patient's journey. It would be much better if there was a, was, was a sort of smoother transition. Well, I spoke with the lady as part of this series who talked about having miscarried and then was still getting the calls from the hospital about the pregnancy scans. There wasn't any comment because the two things happened at different hospitals. And I think that, has, mm. in terms of... We're talking about the trauma Absolutely, around it. Yeah. It's just it's the last thing you need. Exactly. Mm. One frustration that I see patients dealing with all the time, obviously from a medical point of view, I understand why, is the fact that we don't investigate after the first miscarriage or the second and we don't investigate until the third. I mean, I understand the reasons why completely, but do you think from a patient point of view that that could change? It's such a difficult question, isn't it? Because I always find, so I have no doubt that one would find it helpful to find out in the context of a miscarriage that it was a pregnancy that couldn't have formed a healthy baby. Because I think in that context, at least you could, even though there should never be any self-blame, you would know that, that you know, there had been absolutely no, no way this pregnancy could have formed a healthy baby. But the question you always have to ask yourself then is what the corollary means, which is that if you then have results that suggest that there was nothing wrong with the pregnancy or that will often give you the sex of the baby, which I think must be just very difficult news to hear, how that makes women feel. And the truth is, you know, there's masses we don't know about miscarriage. Going back to what you're saying about why we don't investigate to sort of just in a nutshell, it's because we know that 70% of miscarriages are genetically abnormal, which means that they couldn't form a healthy baby. And investigating for that doesn't change the way you manage things going forward. So I think 
offering investigations after one miscarriage specifically for that is potentially helpful for the people who find out that it's abnormal. But I dread to think how unhelpful for the people who find out that it's normal mm. and are then left wondering whether to access expensive and also just take quite a lot of time, the investigations, mm. um, during which time you're, you're recommending not to try for another pregnancy. Mm. That's a very good way of looking at it, actually. A very good way of explaining it as to why we don't do it. Yeah, well, I'm, and, and, and I think there is going to be more of a move to investigating after two miscarriages. And I certainly think that, that women in the context of subfertility yeah. should think about investigating earlier. But, you know, the likelihood is, even if you've had two miscarriages in a row, that there is still, even if you've had three miscarriages in a row, actually, the likelihood is that there is nothing treatable there. It's the sad fact of life that one in four pregnancies will end in miscarriage. And it, you know, it doesn't mean you've done anything wrong or that anything's going to happen wrong next time. It's just that awful role of the diary playing out. Since the study has come out and there was a lot of mainstream press coverage on it, and I think the, the conversations around miscarriage have definitely started to become more destigmatized. We've seen the same with infertility in the time I've been doing the podcast, you know, mm. which is five years now. It's definitely a more mainstream conversation. Which is but it's, brilliant. Which yeah. is brilliant, but it is still obviously stigmatized. And there are still a huge amount of mental health implications as a result of all the things that we have to deal with. What do you hope as a result of the studies that you're doing will begin to change? I mean, we've got a lot of work to do with lots of different parties involved, but what would be, you know, the aims for the outcomes that you're you're showing? One of the sort of really uplifting things about having been involved in this study is that it's just enabled me to be part of sort of starting that conversation as you've been. And I think just the more we talk about it, the better. The more women know, sort of approaching pregnancy, that there is this one in four risk of miscarriage, that one in two women will go through miscarriage in their lifetime. I mean, my dream in life is that this is the sort of conversation that kids get exposed to at school and that it's not all about how to prevent a pregnancy. It's also about fertility and miscarriage as well, so that people see it as part of, you know, as part of life. And it's something that you don't have to um, hide about. Because I had a conversation, I can't remember who with, about the what to expect books and what to expect when you're pregnant and how why isn't there a miscarriage chapter in a what to expect (laughs) I don't I can't remember but I don't think there is or I don't remember I don't remember I mean it's something that I thought had come up as a conversation about there being quite a big gap and like you say it is in that fertility education piece that even in terms of fertility we're so taught we were talking about it earlier we're so taught how not to get pregnant Mm -hmm. we're not taught about what might happen in getting pregnant and then once pregnant yeah well, I mean, going on and get my sort of feminist angle about all this again is that I also think it's amazing how we have no education about childbirth or menopause either. I mean, women are so poorly educated about what are the likely things that they're going to go through in their lives from a health perspective. It's, it beggars belief, really. Well, when we were talking to Christine, as you said, she was saying that she learned most about her own kind of fertility and, and about being from a woman's point of view from her education of being a doctor Absolutely. and I completely agree with that yeah. I learned about my fertility through my education to be a nurse consultant absolutely yeah. and I think if we've learned that way how on earth does anybody learn that information yeah. other than for us trying to teach it exactly but... and you only then learn it just at the point at which you, <laughs> you kind of really need it and really need it to be kind of at a level at which it's not not every word that someone says is confusing mm. and terrifying and yeah but even in the conversations we have amongst our friends and our peers because I know that in having a conversation about a miscarriage the number of conversations that then might happen 
about your friends that have miscarried mm. that you wouldn't necessarily have talked about at the time. And we need to almost allow those conversations and make them safe and yeah. welcome, despite being sad and hard, because we don't at the moment, yeah. do we? Because there's nothing quite like the feeling when you open up about your own experiences and realising that the person who you never knew had gone through them had also knows mm. sort of exactly what you have gone through. And I, I guess, you know, with every one of those stories, there's also often a glimmer of hope because you'll be speaking to someone who's gone on and had exactly the family they wanted to have and, and never have known. It's sad that you didn't know, but then once you do, it makes all the difference, doesn't it? And in the same way, talking about the early pregnancy stage, we were talking about the 12-week getting rid of the 12-week mm. kind of issue, if there is a loss in those early days, you've got that support there too. So it's almost at every step. We just need to bring people in for whatever might happen. Absolutely. When you tell people you're in early pregnancy, you're not telling them necessarily you're going to have a baby. And the more we have this conversation, the more it will become part of kind of societal understanding that someone talking about their pregnancy before the sort of 14-week mark is very different to them talking about their pregnancy sort of later on. And society will get better at dealing with that and sort of not jumping to conclusions about everything going okay. Was there any conversations in your study about the impact on men in a couple that had gone through miscarriage? Absolutely. And we've, we've got the data and we're publishing it in soon. So uh, watch this. <laughs> watch this we'll space. We'll be chatting to you again. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, it's really interesting. It's, I mean, it's, essentially, it won't come as any surprise that partners were A, less willing to take part and B, had sort of lower levels generally of the sort of psychological illnesses that we're talking about. But I think it's important to say that they still do suffer. And I think that's something well, that's We've been... seen that, that with Fertility and also with the podcast that men are starting to talk more and more about infertility, which is so refreshing to yeah. see that at last they're opening up. So let's hope that then with miscarriage, men can start to... Absolutely, and one of the really interesting lines of investigation, actually, at the moment on miscarriage is about sperm health. And so it's really nice for these things to become a sort of shared journey rather than something that's so much within the women's domain. You've used the word toxic in terms of the impact of PTSD on a person's life. And that's quite severe language. Do you think people realise... Because I think there's still that association of PTSD being something related to other things, not this thing, this reproductive health conversation. Back when we published our pilot paper, it was back in the day when all the newspapers had like comment sections underneath, which not many of them do. You know, on the online newspapers had comment sections underneath, which not many of them do anymore, these kind of unpoliced comments. But amongst lots of women who were very clearly very grateful for the research was the sort of vitriol of these ex-army officers who obviously felt that PTSD should be a diagnosis reserved for the battlefield. And then it was very interesting reading the comments back, who were sort of asking these men to justify how they could ever think that what the women had gone through in terms of the severity of their physical experience couldn't be equated to something that would be on a, on a, on a battlefield, essentially. So interesting. Mm. But I think it's really important to say that, you know, people have very varying physical experiences of miscarriage, from things that are very minor to things that are incredibly severe and objectively horrifying. But essentially, even the most minor symptoms, so people who have incredibly early miscarriages, and sort of essentially what might be similar to a heavy period, for that woman experiencing it as the loss of a wanted baby, it's it's huge. And I don't think that it's at all helpful to try and correlate this sort of objective physical experience in terms of the amount of bleeding or the severity, even if we could quantify the severity of pain. 
with the overall potential for it to cause trauma. We know there's probably going to be a lot of information here that has got you thinking. So be sure to visit thefertilitypodcast.com forward slash miscarriage, where we will be listing links to all the different organisations we're mentioning, as well as the different episodes within this series. And of course, you can follow us online. I'm at Fertility Poddy. And I'm at Your Fertility Journey. And just remember, we're here. You're so not alone.